Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you be turning to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin there in just a few moments. We are grateful that you are here this morning, thankful for the opportunity that presents itself that we can be together to study God's Word. Uh, we have some who are still sick and away from us. Our family is short a few today. Clayton uh, was not feeling good last night and coughing and things, so Hannah kept him home and, and Campbell home. Uh, it's hard to believe that we're already near the end of another year, uh, and so uh, sickness comes around again, both with uh, some fall allergies and also the colds that uh, come along and, and sickness in the winter sometimes, so hard to believe it's already time. I'm apologizing this morning already for my, my voice waking up kind of scratchy and, and uh, congested a little bit, so ask for your patience, but uh, look forward to studying together this morning. Also, one other note, if you min missed, uh, Brother Joe's first announcement was an addition to our prayer list, uh, Marvin and Ann's great-granddaughter, Savannah, uh, and Miss Ann passed me a note that said that uh, they are waiting to see if a doctor at Vanderbilt can do the surgery that she needs on her eye, and if not, then they may have to go all the way to Philadelphia next week to try to find uh, a surgeon that can perform uh, the removal of that cyst. So uh, please pray for uh, Marvin Nan's family there and for Savannah in particular. Hope that she uh, can get uh, good news and maybe be able to stay closer to home uh, to get some of the, the surgery that she needs. We're grateful that you're here. Hope that you can stay around for lunch if you'd like to and even be back with us this afternoon as we're going to look at the book of Obadiah. Uh, we'll spend just a few moments talking about that, making some application, uh, but just appreciate the chance to encourage ourselves here today with the study of God's Word and with the fellowship that we can have. <clears throat> you know, I don't know if you're like me, but as you open your Bible and open in particular the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus uh, I don't know if you've read through them lately, but there's just so many things that sometimes line up. If, if you read more than just a few verses at a time, last year we challenged each other, and hopefully you were encouraged to read through the Bible. As you did that, I hope that you read more than, than just maybe, you know, again, a few verses or a page or so. It's really will hit home with us sometimes or stick if we'll sit down and spend upwards of, of even just 30 minutes. I know that can seem like a lot, but certainly we waste time waste our own time sometimes by by watching shows or or you know playing on our phones or social media or things and before we know it we've spent 30 minutes 45 minutes or an hour if we would devote that kind of time to reading God's word we can read through a, a good chunk at one time and then things kind of connect a little differently when you open up to the gospel accounts it's it's very interesting to me to read through the things that Jesus was going through before we get to Mark chapter 10 and Mark chapter 5, he's having all of these interactions with different people and helping them with various things. Mark chapter 5, he heals a demon-possessed man, which would, would have been something to behold. And imagine those who were with him observing this, but also imagine those that may have seen it and then began to follow him. We also see in chapter 5 that he raised, that he raised from the dead Jairus' daughter, Mark chapter 6 is Mark's account of him feeding the 5,000 with the young man and his food that he had, taking that and feeding a large crowd of people. Also in chapter 6, we read of Jesus walking on the sea. And so again, if, you, if you're reading along and you take several chapters at one time, it's just like one thing after another after another. And it's amazing to consider what it would have been like to walk with Jesus. Mark chapter 7, he heals a deaf and mute man. You remember this one because this is the one in verse 33 where he puts his fingers in the man's ears. And so it's a little more memorable for us and sometimes for our children. Mark chapter 8, he 
heals the blind man, but he does so by spitting on the blind man's eyes. And so again, it sticks with us of all these things that he is doing. And so we come to Mark chapter 9, and it's not just the things that he is doing, although those are important, although those are things that help draw people to him. It's not just the things that he is doing, it's the words that he's saying as well. We come to Mark chapter 9, and they are he's getting to his followers, he's getting to his disciples, and he's trying to, to talk to them. All these things that are going on are kind of getting to them a little bit. So we come to verse 33, and they come to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? I don't know about you, but again, I appreciate sometimes reading and even seeing pictures in particular or documentaries or whatever of behind the scenes kind of documentaries. You know what I'm talking about, whether it be, whether it be athletes or, or whether it be someone else. One that's always kind of fascinated me quite often is the presidents, right? The, the presidents all throughout our history. Th those pictures that are in those, those moments where they're alone, whether it's the Oval Office or, or whether it's their bedroom or, you know, the home there in the White House or whatever it is. I remember seeing some over the years of, of the presidents as they would go to all those balls when they are inaugurated, you know, that day. It's just such an amazing day. There's people around you constantly. And so I always love those pictures where it's kind of like they just have a few quiet moments, whether they're by themselves or whether they're with their spouse or whatever it might be. And it's just kind of interesting to me to consider. I mean, I've never been that important, right? I've never been that kind of person that commanded that kind of attention that people were all around. And I know it's, it's probably a pretty poor kind of comparison. But this is one of those instances where I try to think about what it must have been like for Jesus and those who were with him. You see, we've just mentioned five, six, seven, and eight, all these things. People are constantly surrounding him. And yet here it is that they have just a few moments alone. They have a few quiet moments. And what is it that happens? Well, he asked him a question. Verse 33 says, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, here's the thing. It's not just any question. It's a specific question that hints at something that he would not have known, right? So there we get the idea that they're walking or traveling together, whether Jesus is ahead, whether he's interacting with someone else, we don't know, but they are away from him, even if it's just five or 10 steps, and they're arguing amongst themselves and we know how that is right you ever see somebody who's arguing sometimes away whether it's their head that's going back and forth or their finger or their their mouths you can tell when something's going on and so in a private moment Jesus says hey guys what was it go ahead what was the problem what were you arguing about and it's just like a family interaction right it's just like when we do this with our kids because in verse 34 Mark records for us that they kept silent Right? That question of the kids, all right, fess up. Who was arguing? What was going on? And everybody's just shut mouth. Nobody wants to say. For on the road, Mark includes us in the conversation, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So let me, let me ask you again. Put yourself in their shoes. So many times we go to Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, and we point out this great sermon. Some people call it the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And we think about all that Jesus said. 
And at times he would give this discourse. Maybe all these words of all that they should do. And yet sometimes it's one simple phrase. You see, the sermon here is going to be just as powerful as it is at other times because it doesn't take much. He doesn't have to lecture. He doesn't have to raise his voice. He doesn't have to get animated. He simply says to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. He shall be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, you must be last. But he doesn't stop there. And once again, it's not going to take these flowery words, this long, drawn-out sermon, but he goes for the object lesson. Verse 36, he takes a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, he does continue on, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he even brings a child in the midst of them to try to drive home this point about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now hold that in your mind for just a moment because I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 10. But keep that in mind as we keep going through what is taking place with Jesus here. Mark chapter 10, that he arose from there, came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan and multitudes gathered to him again. Once again, not the private moment, but the crowd that's thronging upon him. A large group of people are gathered here. He's going to talk in the first 12 verses about marriage and divorce. And for our sake this morning, we're not going to focus on that for our time. Not that it's not important, obviously. But we're going to set that aside as another section of scripture that we can study possibly in the future. But in verse 13, once again, they bring children to him. And again, the disciples still have this mentality. Notice verse 15. They, that could be any they, but probably the people are bringing children to him. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. We say quite often how frustrating it must have been because we, you, who are parents, understand. When you tell your children something and they turn around and they do the exact same thing again when you've told them not to, it's frustrating. Jesus has just said, quit worrying about who's going to be first. You need to be last. And yet here they are just a page or a few verses later and they're still worried about being first. They're still worried about the, the, what it looks like, what's going on. And so while all these people are bringing children to him, they are rebuking them. They're still having this mentality. And so what we want to notice before we get into the title of our lesson, first of all this morning, is from these few verses, and and I meant to say this at the beginning, but sometimes we have lessons that are topical. Sometimes we look at lots of verses. We We might sometimes throw out 30 or 40 different verses in a lesson, you know, from 1 Peter or 1 Corinthians or Romans and all these things. Today we're going to try to just focus on Mark here, Mark's account in chapter 10. We'll mention a few other passages. But let's notice here that there are three types of people who will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a few different occasions here that take place. And there are three types of people who we see will enter the kingdom of heaven. Number one, the first, the low, L-O-W, the low. Those who are low will enter the kingdom of heaven. What an object lesson that he has right here. He's already used a little child back in chapter 9 
But in verse number 10, he's got another, excuse me, chapter 10, he's got another object lesson to try to teach the disciples with here. They rebuked the people. Jesus saw it and was greatly displeased in verse number 14, and he's going to have a chance to use it as an object lesson. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Notice, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, once again, I'm not a Greek scholar, as we know and say quite often, but I'm told that the force of the Greek words there in verse number 14 at the end of his statement, part B there, is for to such as these, and the force is you have to be such as these, to be like them. For of such is the kingdom of God, for to such as these. You know what? Sometimes kids are trouble, right? I mean, they're just trouble. They just cause trouble. They push the boundaries. They do things they shouldn't do. And sometimes kids are just, they cause us trouble. They cause grief sometimes, right? But you know what's also true about little children? They don't have the problems that we have as adults. They're teachable. They like They lack prejudice that we sometimes have as we get older when we look at certain groups of people or certain types of people and we say well we don't want to be like them kids don't have that when they show up quite often in class whether it be school in kindergarten or something like that it, it doesn't matter color doesn't matter all these things don't matter to where they are moldable they are teachable and they're not hardened like we are as adults sometimes and so the mention here that Jesus says is the people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, are those who are low. Those who are low like these little children. And look at the description of how Jesus was interacting with them. It says in verse number 16, he took them up and laid his hands on them. I say this sometimes to be very careful, but I'm not trying to be irreverent. Okay, I'm not trying to make it too simplistic or make Jesus, you know, some people say things like, you know, Jesus is my bro or things like that. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I picture here Jesus almost similar to what we would think of a man, a large man, maybe and kids crawling all over him like a, a jungle gym, so to speak. Right. It says that he took them up in his arms and he was also laying his hands on them. I imagine him arms full of kids. It's not cold. He doesn't say, hey, all right, everybody line up here and go that way. And one at a time, he walks down the line shaking their hands. It's not cold. He doesn't just say, okay, y'all leave me alone and get out of here. Again, I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent, but I imagine that he's literally have them, has them on his arms. He's welcoming them in. He's trying to drive home this point that we must be low. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, first of all, you must be humble. You must be low. You must be like little children. Now, this interaction here in verses 13 through 16, it must come to an end. And so then they prepare to move on. So Jesus and his, his posse, his group here, they move, are moving out on the road in verse number 17 when one comes running. Now, in our day today, right, that'd be kind of scary, right? Somebody comes running at you, we're all going to shut down. Again, I go back to the presidential example. If someone is ever coming at a president in that kind of way, right, the Secret Service is going to lock down, they're going to protect him. So they're moving out on the road, and here comes a person running. 
Verse 17, the person says, of course, what shall I do? Now, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, Matthew records this same interaction. Matthew 19 and verse 16, the, the phrase is used, what good thing shall I do? So it's possible, and, and again, we have these kind of dueling ways that it's said, but it's possible that maybe he means that he's looking for just one thing and then he wants to be done. Maybe the phrase was, hey, teacher, master, good teacher, what's the one thing I need to do? I need you to tell me the one thing, in essence, saying the one thing so I can do it and I can be done, right? Because how many people would say, boy, if I can get in that water and that's it, that's all I got to do, I'm good. Check the box and I'm done. Maybe that's the attitude with which he says, but he says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Maybe we're like him. Don't we sometimes try to find that minimum amount, that one thing? You mean to tell me if I'll just come on Sunday morning? Or you mean to tell me if I'll just come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, that's all I have to do? I don't have to do anything outside of this building? Sometimes we're looking for that kind of lifestyle. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, keep the commandments of Moses' law. So the rich young ruler says, done, done that, all my life, got it, check done those things. And think about that. Imagine coming to Jesus and asking him what you must do. And when he tells you, you seem to brush it off as if, yeah, I'm good. Don't worry. I've, I've got that. I've done all that. Instead of understanding that you are lost, that you are a sinner in need of a savior. You see, go back to our first point. It seems as if this rich young ruler is not low. Jesus tells him what to do. And he says, I've got that. Don't worry, got that box checked. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done that. So Jesus brushes them off, right? No, that's not what he does. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done it. So Jesus rejects him, right? No, that's not how it goes either. Jesus says, keep my commandments. He says, I've done it. So Jesus loves him. That's what Jesus does. In verse 21, he doesn't brush him off. He doesn't reject him. He recognizes that he's not number one low, but he loves him. He loves him. And so he says, don't trust in your riches. Get rid of what you have. You see, the master teacher here, granted, he's better than us, right? He is God. But the master teacher has found his weak spot. And we know the end. We know that he won't do it. We know that he is trusting in his stuff. So what's our second point? Well, number one, those who enter the kingdom of heaven must be low, or those who would. Number two, those who trust in God. Those are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who trust in God. So the young man leaves. He can't do it. You know, he has some emotion. Verse 22 says that he was sorrowful. We might treat him sometimes as if he's cold and he rejects Jesus, just plain and simple. But he has some feeling He's got that sort of turning over in his stomach, as we sometimes say, that feeling of, ooh, I know I should do this, but I just can't quite go through with it. He can't quite follow through. So number one, we see that those who enter the kingdom of heaven would be low. Number two, we see that those who trust in God, those are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven. But verse 23, after this young man goes away, I imagine... Again, at least in my mind's eye, Jesus stops and he surveys the land. 
right? He begins to look around. He sees who is left, and he begins to explain further. You know, it's not wrong to have riches, right? Abraham was rich, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 2. Joseph of Arimathea was rich, we'll read about in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57. It's not wrong to have riches. He didn't tell him that he was sinning just by simply having things. But Jesus does say it is hard. It's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. So we've said those who are low, number one, enter the kingdom. Those who trust in God can enter the kingdom. But number three, the third thing is that those who do not trust in riches can enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those who do not trust in riches. Jesus says it's hard. He uses the word, verse 23, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it, Jesus? Can you give us some explanation? Can you try to explain how hard it is? And he says, absolutely. The disciples in verse 24 are astonished. So he's going to give them a description. And that is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I meant to bring a needle up here, started to grab one and, and bring it up here, but you know what a needle is. If you've ever been frustrated at trying to thread the needle to put that piece of string or whatever it might be through that needle, it's difficult just to do that. And then we imagine a camel. I know we don't have camels today around here. You know, we don't use them all the time, although we certainly know what they are. But Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We say, hyperbole much there, Jesus? I mean, can, could you give us something different? But that's how hard that it is. And as we've already noticed in verse number 26, it says it again, that they were greatly astonished. He blows their mind. That's the way we say it today. They don't quite understand, even though it's a hyperbolic statement that explains just how hard it is. <coughs> Excuse me, it just is. We all have stuff. Maybe you've got more than I've got. Maybe I've got more than you got, but we've all got stuff, possessions. You know, that's what it said about the rich young ruler there in verse 22, that he had many possessions. That's why he went away sorrowful. Could we be in that boat? Oh, we absolutely could. Are we rich compared to a lot of the world? Well, we might say that's true as well, but we all have stuff. And when we have stuff, we put it in the place of God. That's what we often do. Our stuff goes in the place of God. And it's idolatry. We've said it a hundred times in various classes and lessons. But you can't go to heaven when you have idols in the place of God. Your stuff comes before him. So those who enter the kingdom of heaven must be low. They must trust in God. And they must also not trust in riches if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the title of our lesson mentions some things that we want to draw from this. Now, Jesus gives some qualifiers to the rich young ruler, doesn't he? If you look back in verse number 18 and 19, he talks about keeping the law. We know that we don't live under the law. We don't have to keep the law. But also, in verse 21, after the rich young ruler says, got it, done all those things, Jesus gives, we, we might say some description, some qualifiers. He said, go your way, 
sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. You see, here it is. Jesus gives him some of these things that go along with it, but there is really only one requirement. And that one requirement is, follow me. Follow me. I mean, think about Matthew 5 through 7. Think about all that he says in the gospel accounts. And it really boils down to one requirement. Follow me. Now, Paul goes into great detail. Paul gives us detail in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he says that it is a daily sacrifice. Every day. If we want to follow him, it must be something that is a part of our everyday lives. Paul would say it as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. I buffet... I discipline my body. It's something that takes work to follow him. And here's the thing I think about. When I come back and I I open Mark chapter 10 and I look at this interaction with Jesus, Jesus says, follow me. And maybe, just maybe, we can put into it there that he means physically. Just simply, physically come and follow him. But you know what? We, We can't do that, right? We can't physically follow Jesus. He's not here. But what does it mean when Jesus says to follow me? We know that later in John 14 and verse 15, he would say, If you love me, keep my commandments. But let me ask you as well, besides just keeping his commandments, what if you were there? What would follow me mean? Well, to follow him physically would have meant time. Do you have time? Do I have time that we could commit to following Jesus? I think so. We may not have him physically in the flesh, but are we following him with our time? If you're standing there in that moment and Jesus says, follow me, they would have had money. Do you have money? Do I have money? Do we have money and are we following him by committing our money to him? Or are we simply keeping all those things for ourselves? Are we simply putting all those things in the first place above him and above God the Father? The simple requirement is to follow me give up our stuff humble ourselves and follow him is that what we are willing to do that's the requirement and it's really a simple question isn't it it really is i don't ask you the elders don't ask you the the bible doesn't say that we have to turn in a spreadsheet each week with our time it doesn't say that we have to disclose all the money that we make and how much we're giving The question is not to me. The question is not to the elders. The question is to Jesus. Are we following him? That's the requirement. It was the requirement in Mark chapter 10. It's the requirement today. Are we following him? But see, here's the the best part. Some people stop there and they say, that's hard, Jesus. That takes my time. It takes my money. But Jesus mentions here that while there is simply one requirement, there are actually two rewards. So go back to your Bible and let's notice what happens again. Moving on from the rich young ruler, when he begins speaking in verse 23, he tells them it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Verse 26, he blows their mind. They don't understand. They ask the question, well, then what are we to do? How is it possible? And he answers in verse 27, with men it is impossible. You can't do it on your own, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. So here we go. Peter. Oh, impetuous Peter. Oh, Peter steps in, probably like some of us would have done, and he opens his big mouth. And Peter says, 
Look what I have done. Look what I've done, Lord. Look at what we have done. We have left all and we have followed you. Can you imagine in your mind's eye again, Peter pointing down the road? That man may not be that far away. And Peter's pointing and says, look at him, Lord. Look at what we have done. We have left all and followed you, not him. Yet Jesus, probably with love in his heart, as he has done before with the rich young ruler, looks at him. And maybe Peter was expecting some type of financial gain. Maybe here's where Peter's going for the money, some kind of compensation. Look what we've given up, Lord. What are you going to do for us? But Jesus says there are two types of reward. Number one, family. The first type of reward is family. Now, actually, he says, beginning in verse number 29, that you may have to leave your family. You may have to leave your family. That doesn't mean you've got to go to Africa or the Ukraine, or somewhere overseas. You don't actually have to physically move away from your family, but has anyone in this room, and you of course don't have to show your hands, had to walk away from a family member who would not follow God, who would not do what is right? He says you have to leave your family. Maybe, but in the end, you get something so much better. Verse 29, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, verse 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecution. Now, that's what we can receive. Well, what is it now? Jesus says, you may have to leave your physical family, but you get a spiritual family. You get a spiritual family that loves you and will care for you. You get the church. You get people to turn to, people who will help you, people who will pray for you. And you may have to give up earthly family, but you get new mothers and brothers and sisters in this family. Have you ever said it about anybody here? They're like my second mom. They're like the brother or sister I never had. They're like my family. Jesus says we're going to get a hundredfold. And maybe like Peter, we stand there and we say, well, where is it? We're looking for money or something to fall out of the sky. Jesus says you may have to leave your family, but this is the blessing. And how many times have we said, I don't know how somebody does it. I don't know how somebody deals with cancer or surgery or grief without a church family. Jesus says, this is your reward now. And yet people today look at the church and they say, well, why should I want to be a part of that? Why is it that I have to give my time to the church? Why do I have to deal with these people? But it's a blessing. It's a reward. If your family is awful to you or if your family was awful to you, I'm sorry. If your earthly family is a poor picture of what family should be, I'm sorry. But you can receive a family that will bless you. The church is not a retribution. It's a reward. It's not a punishment. It's not something we have to do. It's a blessing. Now, Jesus also gives that caveat that with all of these blessings, this blessing comes persecutions. But there is this one reward. And sometimes we simply wait for the money. 
We simply wait for the good times instead of realizing that one of the great rewards is the spiritual family that we have here. You give up your earthly family, but you gain a spiritual family. That's the blessing that we receive here. But then, the second blessing, he doesn't expound in great detail on at this moment, but the second reward is found there at the end of verse number 30, eternal life. Follow me, and you shall receive eternal life. Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful until death, and thou shalt receive a crown of life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, there is a crown of righteousness which the Lord will give to me and to all who have loved his appearing. Do you want the rewards? Fulfill the requirement. Be low. Trust in God. Don't trust in riches. Get rid of the idols. Follow him. And now, now you get the blessing of faithful brethren. You get the reward of having a family that will love you and support you and pray for you. A true family who loves you, cares for you, and do anything to help you. That's now. Then you receive eternal life. And how wonderful it is. I told you to put in your mind very quickly verse 31. He said it at the end of chapter 9, there, or towards the end of chapter 9, as he called the child amongst them when he knew they had been arguing, and he says... If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. And it's almost as if, before they're about to depart again and begin to move, he has this quiet moment here where he's instructed them. And at the end of verse 31, or in verse 31, he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We sang the song a moment ago, Sweet are the promises. Sweet are the promises of Jesus. Sweet are the rewards of Jesus, God the Father, and the church. Where he leads, I'll follow, follow all the way. Where he leads, I'll follow, I'll follow Jesus every day. Is that a song that you sang with conviction? Is that a song that you meant from inside your heart and with your life? Or maybe this morning the possibility exists that you need to make a change in your life. We're about to sing a song in just a moment. Do you know my Jesus? If you're here and you don't know the saving power of the blood of Christ, we would be singing to encourage you with heaven's invitation. That is, that it's nothing that the elders can do here or that I can do or any, any person can do, but it's the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, the promises and commands of God that are sure and true. You can submit yourself to him in obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. You can become a child of God, be added to the church by repenting of your sins and being baptized for the remission of those sins. If you'd like to study more about that, we would do that even this day or as soon as possible. But maybe you're here and you've done that. You've stood before an audience. Many of you stood right here and you said, I will follow him. But yet the way life goes, we start to wander away. The way life goes, we're sometimes like that rich young ruler where we encounter Jesus again and we walk away sorrowful because we've got too many things going on. We've got too many idols in his place. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a child of God who has wandered away. You need to come back to him to follow him so that you can enjoy the great blessings and the great blessing ultimately of eternal life. Do you know Jesus? If not, why not? We sing to encourage you now as we stand together and as we sing.